0: Join me in your copy of God's Word in uh, the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. As you find your way, I'll just kind of give you an update and a forecast of where we're headed in the next uh, several weeks. Uh, We have, in our our Sunday morning series in Acts, we've kind of reached a point where there's sort of a natural break in the uh, progression of the story the Acts of the Apostles, uh, where now the the gospel has saturated Jerusalem, the church has grown there, and we're beginning to see in the book of Acts uh, the gospel move to the next region of Judea and Samaria. Uh, We're going to take a a break here, even as I said at the beginning of the year that we would do uh, at this point for about five weeks, a break from Acts. um, But let me tell you exactly where we're going to be. Now, this is not an excuse to take a break from church just because we're not going to be in Acts for the next several weeks. I will still be looking to see where empty seats are. That I know are normally filled, but today we're uh, today being Palm Sunday. We're going to look at Luke chapter nineteen, uh, verses twenty-eight through forty, and Jesus' entry into Jerusalem uh, the week before he is crucified. Next week, uh, being Easter Sunday, we will celebrate the resurrection, uh, looking at Romans chapter. Four, uh, in sort of a two part mini series between Good Friday and Easter, uh, looking at Romans uh, chapter four and the, the end of that chapter, uh, on that note, you probably notice in your seat or on a seat near, uh, next to your nearby uh, a little card, a little uh, index size. Uh, uh, index card sized uh, card that has information about our Good Friday and Easter uh, Sunday morning um, uh, service times and worship times. Uh, These are for you to take, not to leave, and they are for you to give, not to keep. Okay. So on the back side there, you'll see uh, a couple of lines in which you can write your name and your email address or your phone number so that you can give that card as an invitation to uh, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor who may not know the Lord, who may not have a church home, inviting them to join you for worship, not to join us for worship. Well, to join us, but particularly to join you in worship this Friday, this coming Friday and uh, an Easter Sunday as well. Tonight, as we gather as a, a body of believers at 5 o'clock to pray, pray for our, uh, for our community, for our neighbors, for the needs of our church, we're going to take more of these cards into the neighborhoods that, that surround our church, that are nearby, uh, going door-to-door. Door, we're going to uh, knock on doors. Yes, that's, that's right. We have to talk to people, and uh, we're going to ask our neighbors how we can pray for them, if there are ways that we can be of ministry to them. Uh, if so, we're going to pray for them, and then we're going to invite them to join us uh, to Good Friday and to, to our Good Friday services and our Sunday Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning services. So that's where we'll be today and next week, and then for three weeks after that, we're going to take a, a short detour uh, from the Book of Acts, and we're going to be uh, just looking at uh, at the at, at this uh, concept of prayer and what is it as believers uh, that we're doing when we pray. We're going to spend three weeks looking particularly at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 and breaking that apart in different ways, uh, different, uh, different aspects of that, that we see uh, Jesus encouraging us and commanding us to pray in different ways. So that's where we're headed for the next five weeks. After that, we'll be right back into Acts and moving on in toward the summer. Hopefully by now you've found your, your way to Luke chapter 19, uh, verses 28 through 40. And I would ask that you would stand with me as we read God's Word together. Luke, the same author of Acts, this missionary companion, uh, physician, uh, friend of Paul the Apostle, writes this uh, uh, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 19, beginning of verse 28. When he had said these things, that is Jesus, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And when they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way The old saying, a picture is worth a thousand words, often rings true in our lives. But on rare occasion, it is also true that a picture is worth much more than this. This was the case in 2007 when a rare portrait painted by the Renaissance master, Raphael, not the Ninja Turtle, but the Renaissance master, a rare portrait that he had painted made it to auction at Christie's in London. The portrait is of Lorenzo de' Medici, the Duke of Urbino whose family were major patrons of the arts during the Renaissance period. The image itself portrays the duke in a billowing crimson coat with gold, fur, gold and fur trim, and in the duke's right hand, a small, uh, detailed golden box signifying his wealth and future prospects. The portrait was commissioned uh, upon the engagement or the betrothal of this duke to another young woman. Now, Christie's of London, the the prominent art auction house, claimed that this was the most important work of Raphael to come to auction in 115 years. Thus, its initial estimated auction price of 15 million British pounds. In this passage of Luke's gospel, we have on display for us a portrait, not of a duke, but of a king. And not just of any king, but of Jesus, the Christ, the only Son of God, King of kings and Lord of lords. Here in Luke 19, verses 28 through 40, Luke shows us Jesus being ushered into Jerusalem as a king by his followers as the week of his betrayal and crucifixion begins. Here we see Jesus, the true king, God's son, chosen one who who will reign forever forever. And and we see a portrait not only of a king, but also of his followers and those who surround him. We see in the portrait of the king and those who follow him that people will either receive him as a king through repentance and faith in his redeeming work, or they will reject him and make themselves continued enemies of his kingdom. So let us, as we look at Luke chapter 19, uh, verses 28 through 40, on this Palm Sunday, looking at the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem the week before he'll be betrayed and crucified, let us first see the picture. Let us first see the portrait of this king. We see here in these verses a portrait of Jesus, who is the anointed king. Jesus, the anointed, the chosen king, who as he comes into Jerusalem, arrives with purpose. Verses 28 through 36 point out several aspects of the, the purpose, the intentionality with which Jesus arrives into Jerusalem. Purpose and intentionality and meaning fill every corner of this picture that we have in this passage before us. The city that Jesus is entering is filled with meaning. Jerusalem itself was the capital of Israel. This is the city previously called Jebus, which was conquered by uh, David, who had later become uh, 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 king of Israel. Jerusalem was home to the throne of the nation of Israel until its destruction and its conquering in 587 BC. Even after Jerusalem was rebuilt, it had no king, even in the line of David, on the throne, nor any king in any capacity to do much as a king, given that the entire area was under Greek and then later Roman control. Jesus, as Luke shows us in his genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, shows us that that Jesus is a son in the line of David. He could trace his lineage back to David the king. Jesus is a rightful heir to the throne. And here we find him in Luke 19, entering into the capital city of Israel. The scene is fraught with significance. Not only the city is, is itself significant, but also the animal itself that Jesus rides in on. First of all, we find that this is the colt of a donkey. Now, you may have not ever thought much about Jesus riding on the back of a donkey. But this is a colt of a donkey that Jesus says has never been ridden, uh, has never been ridden, has never been saddled, has never been yoked or used for labor of any kind. The very first act of work for this colt, for this animal, will be to carry God's Son, the Messiah, the King, into Jerusalem. Now, to reserve such an animal for this occasion or any occasion for such an honor like this was exceedingly rare and speaks to the status of the one who rides upon it. Now, recently, uh, our family was gifted in our home with a beautiful farm table for our dining room. My wife loves it. It weighs about 800 pounds. It's not moving anywhere. It is now uh, integral to the structure of our home. And it's wonderful, but before it was ever eaten on or, or played at by our girls, before ever guests sat down to, to consume a meal at this table, its first use was as a gathering point for the teaching of God's word and for prayer by several uh, other church members. Now, this wasn't by our design or plan, but it certainly did set a special significance upon that table forever for us. We will always remember that the first thing that that table was used for was for gathering around the word of God and for prayer. It makes it very special. in a similar but far more significant way, this donkey's colt upon which Jesus rides is separated for a special purpose. It's significant. And while the owner of the Colt this donkey's colt likely did not know that this would be this animal's purpose when it was born Certainly jesus did and he gives very specific instruction to his disciples as to where they will find the animal and how to procure it We see in verses 30 and 31 Jesus is giving specific direction to the disciples about what they will find when they go in to uh, To this town to look for a donkey where they will find it and what they are to say even to the man who owns it What's more? Jesus riding on this animal into Jerusalem, not just that it's, it's significant, that this is the only thing that this animal has ever been used for up to this point, but his, his riding into this animal is significant because it actually fulfills prophecy. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 21, as Matthew tells the same story of Jesus entering Jerusalem, he there mentions that all of this, Jesus riding on the donkey, was done to fulfill what was written by the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah 9, chapter 9, verse 9, we read this. prophet says about 500 years or so, even before Jesus is born, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew says the reason Jesus rides in on a donkey is because he's fulfilling this scripture. He's fulfilling this prophecy from Zechariah. Even the kind of animal is significant here. Not just that it's a cult, not just that Jesus knew about it, not just that Jesus is, is fulfilling prophecy, but even the kind of animal, a donkey, is significant. Donkeys, friends, are not beasts of war. They're beasts of burden. I've never seen anybody try to ride a donkey into battle, but my guess is it would probably not go very well. Rather, donkeys are used for farming and for tilling soil and pulling plows and carrying heavy loads. Horses are animals that are used in and bred for war. Donkeys are animals that are bred for work that can only be done in times of peace. When there's not, not concern for, for war or for fighting or for defending your homeland. Jesus is a king who comes not to wage political war, but riding on a donkey to bring peace on earth. Third... The city is significant. The the animal that Jesus rides on is significant. Third, notice the the act of the disciples and others laying their coats both on the back of the colt and on the road ahead of Jesus. This act of taking off one's outer garment and laying it on the back of the donkey or, 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 or on a road in front of this animal as Jesus rides in would be considered the modern equivalent of rolling out the red carpet for royalty to walk upon. Now, in the United States, we don't really have royalty. We have those that, that we elect into office, but we do roll out the red carpet just for celebrities at the Emmys. But, um, but, but in, in uh, several centuries ago, you would roll out a red carpet to announce a, a king was coming. The king wouldn't just walk on the ground like everybody else. He is shown special honor, special dignity, and so also do the disciples in this passage show special honor, special dignity to Christ. We're told in Matthew's gospel, again, Matthew chapter 21, verse 8. You can find that later this week. That the crowd also laid palm branches on the road and waved them as Jesus went along. So they're taking off their cloaks to cover the animal, to cover the road as Jesus enters. They're waving palm branches as well and laying those on the road as Jesus goes. Now, palm branches are significant in themselves as well. We don't see palm branches in Luke 19. But in terms of taking this whole composite picture of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, they're certainly present there. Palms and palm branches were a symbol of national Israel. Similar to like uh, the the stars and stripes, the the American flag that we have is a symbol of the United States. So palm branches in that day were a symbol of the nation of Israel. And all of this, the people waving the palms, laying them down in the road was a way of saying the king of Israel is coming. This is his coronation. Everybody get ready for what is about to happen. In light of the city, in light of the animal that Jesus is riding, the city that he's entering, the animal that he's riding uh, upon, in light of the, the things that the disciples do in, in terms of laying their cloaks on the back of the donkey and on the road, waving palm branches, every indication here in this passage is that what is happening is a special occasion filled with meaning and purpose, even beyond the scope of understanding of those who were present that day in many ways. Everything here is significant. It's significant beyond even what the disciples were able, were able to uh, perceive in that day. And we know the significance of it because we have the Old Testament, we have the rest of the New Testament as well to point to its significance. We have the help of gospel writers like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to point to its significance. But, but we do well to recognize that significance. That Jesus entering into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey with palm branches and cloaks being laid before him is not an everyday of cur- an everyday occurrence. All of this is happening on purpose and with a purpose. Jesus, the anointed king, enters the city with significance and with purpose. And he is, as we see in verses 37 and 38, preceded with praise. There are people going before him, praising him. As this crowd of followers of Jesus moves along, they cry out rejoicing in the mighty works that Jesus has done, Luke tells us. Now, other kings, as they entered into their capital city after victory in war, would have been preceded with songs of praise about their war exploits. Here you might be thinking of the the song that King David had that people sang about him. Saul has killed his thousands. David has his tens of thousands, right? So songs like that would precede kings as they entered into cities, songs of their exploits in war. But here, though, the people that, is following, that are following Jesus are singing not of his war exploits, but of his miracles, of his mighty works. In the context of Luke's gospel, these mighty works could refer to the healing of a blind man earlier in Luke chapter 19. Even the conversion of Zacchaeus, that uh, Jewish tax collector who then in turn repented of his sins and restored to those that he had cheated fourfold what he had taken. In the Gospel of John, the, this triumphal entry passage, this, this event happens in, John, in the context of John's Gospel after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. In Matthew and Mark, we see also, like in Luke, the healing of blind men outside the city of Jericho. All of these would have been among the mighty works that the people are praising Jesus for as they are ushering him toward Jerusalem. But notice also that they pronounce a greeting ahead of Jesus. They say in verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this greeting is actually a quote. It's a citation from Psalm chapter 118 verses 25 and 6, where there the psalmist writes, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, was a common greeting among those who were coming and going out of the holy city, coming and going out of the city of Jerusalem. Makes sense, right? You see somebody walking along the road, they're going into Jerusalem to worship. You're, you're leaving Jerusalem, Jerusalem, having just worshiped. You see this, this brother, this sister, this friend of, of, uh, uh, of yours, this kinsman, and you say, Blessed are you, because you're coming in the name of the Lord. And they're saying to you, Blessed are you, as you're going in the name of the Lord. It became a common greeting on the roads. In In and out of Jerusalem. But notice that in the mouths of the disciples. There's a a slight nuance to the greeting. They're not saying blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Again pointing to Jesus authority. And that he is the chosen one of God. The one who is coming to reign over all Israel and over all the world. In addition to saying, blessed is the king who comes in the Lord, they also go forward in praise saying, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That ought to sound familiar. This phrase seems to echo the song of the angels at Jesus' birth in Luke chapter two, fourteen, 14. Where as he was born, angels sing to the shepherds in the fields nearby. These angels say, glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. The disciples say, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. The king is coming. The son of the Messiah is one of glory, is one who gives glory to God, who is of the very glory of God. He is a king of peace. He is one who, who has come to, to return all things to their proper state with God. In Jesus' death and resurrection, which will take place roughly a week after the events that we're reading here, He secures peace between God and man as the judgment for sin is dealt out on him on behalf of humanity. And God is glorified as Jesus is raised triumphant over sin and death as part of the Father's perfect plan to provide salvation for sinful man. Peace in heaven because Jesus has paved the way. Glory to God in the highest because Jesus will be raised. He is preceded with praise. Jesus, this king, ushered into Jerusalem. With praise of his miraculous works and of who he is as king of Israel. But we see in verse 39. He arrives with purpose. He's proceeded with praise. But but here in verse 39, he is also rejected with prejudice. Rejected with prejudice. The passage we read this morning closes with the Pharisees, you know, those legalistic rabbis, Jewish leaders, who, who, who are here now in this scene, coming against Jesus yet again, confronting Jesus yet again, commanding him to hush his disciples. Rebuke your disciples, they say to Jesus. Shut them up. Certainly they would have known all the implications of this scene. They weren't stupid people. They were well-educated. They see the significance of what is going on here. They would have known all the implications of of this event and the things that Jesus' followers were saying. Maybe even they, better than the disciples, knew where all of this was headed. What they were doing, the the Pharisees would claim, what the disciples were doing was tantamount to treason, even to blasphemy. to, To claim that this Jesus could somehow be the Messiah, could somehow be the chosen one, the King of Israel. Shut them up, the Pharisees say. This can't be true. The Pharisees thought there was no way that Jesus could be this that he could be the Messiah. Their prejudiced and preconceived notions of what God's chosen servant, what his ruling king would be, made it impossible for Jesus to fit their mold of a king. And so they reject him. But they reject not just the man, but also his authority. When you reject a king, you don't just reject the person, you also reject the office and all of the authority and rulership and reign that comes with it. These Pharisees reject not just Jesus the man, but they reject his throne and they reject his kingdom. As we look at Luke chapter 19 verses 28 through 40, I think our proper response to this, the place where this kind of intersects our lives, the challenge to us here is this, is to see the picture, see the portrait of the king. See Jesus, the king of kings, in this picture and determine whether you yourselves will join in worshiping him as king or if you will join those who reject him. Now, take note also of this, though, too. Even if you in your heart determine to reject Jesus as king, verse 40 is still true. He says, "Even I tell you this, even if these were silent, even if no one praised me as king, even if no one submitted themselves to my, to my rule and to my reign and to my redemptive rescue work in their life, if no one saw me for who I am and nobody praised me for who I am and nobody followed me in faith and obedience, even the very stones would cry out. Every man, woman, and child on this earth could reject Jesus as king, and that does not mean that he has lost his reign. He's still king of the universe, still king of the cosmos. He just has a lot more enemies in that scenario. Very often we look at Luke chapter 19, we see, the, we see the disciples that are following Jesus and we see the Pharisees that are, that are telling Jesus to rebuke his disciples. And very often we try to find ourselves in the text, we're like, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with the disciples. I'm right there with them, I'm taking my jacket off, you know, I'm going to put it on the ground and get me a palm branch and usher Jesus in. But I think all too often we fail to see that we're not really much like the disciples. In fact, most of the time we're a lot like the Pharisees. We want Jesus to be the king the way that we see him as king. The way we want him to be king. We don't want a king on his terms. We want a king on our terms. And so friends, know this. That Jesus, the king of kings, is, is, he's king on his terms, not yours. You don't get to make him in your image. He isn't the king that you want him to be. He is the king that, that God has proclaimed him to be. So know and determine in your own heart this morning whether you will join in worshiping Jesus as the king that he is. Or if you'll join those who reject him, because he's not the king that they wanted. Raphael's portrait of Lorenzo de' Medici went to Christie's in London to be auctioned. But unlike other works that had gone up for sale before, this piece, because of its rarity and its extreme value, was only viewable by those who were certified to bid upon it in a special room dedicated to this one portrait. Every little detail of the room in which Raphael's portrait of Lorenzo de' Medici, every detail of this room was meticulously ordered to highlight every feature of the Duke's likeness. Christie's even commissioned an accomplished scholar and art dealer to select the perfect frame for this piece. The value of a frame is often underestimated in its ability to set apart a piece of art. But in the case of Raphael's portrait of the Duke of Urbino, it made a massive difference. Frames can, with much subtlety, highlight otherwise indiscernible details of works of art. Frames draw out not only the beauty of the piece itself, but also tie the artwork to its surroundings and put it in its proper place. With its new frame and crafted display, Raphael's portrait of the Duke... Previously valued, estimated to be auctioned or to be purchased for 15 million British pounds, sold not for 15 million British pounds, but for 18 and a half million British pounds, setting a record for any piece of Raphael's work. The value of the painting was increased by the frame. And so also is the value of the picture of Jesus that we have here in Luke chapter 19 increased by the way that Luke frames this story. We need to see the picture of Jesus. That we need to see the portrait of the king here. But we also need to discern the frame. We need to look at this passage, uh, to use a phrase borrowed from a brother here in our church, with 2020 vision. We need to look at the 20 verses that precede it and the 20 verses that follow it. And in doing that, we're able to discern the way that Luke frames this picture First, he frames this picture by showing us the realm of the king. He shows us not just a portrait of Jesus as king, but the realm of the king, how he rules, how he reigns. Now, the prevailing notion of what the Messiah would look like in Jesus's day is that he would come as a political king who would run Rome out of Israel once and for all and return the nation to geopolitical significance. Israel was going to be a place again. Israel is going to be on the map again. He would be a nationalist warrior who would exact God's judgment on Israel's enemies and make them great again. Much may have been minds of those who accompany Jesus along that road. They may have been thinking the same thing. Those that are taking off their cloaks are thinking this king is coming to, to, to finally kick Rome out of Jerusalem. But if we look at how Luke frames this portrait of Jesus, we find that making Israel great again is not really on Jesus's agenda. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, flip the page back or look earlier at Zacchaeus's house. Jesus, having just seen this man, uh, recognized that he's the son of David, the son of God, the one who has come. The, and in knowing Jesus, Zacchaeus repents. He turns from his old way of living. He restores to, uh, money to those that he has cheated. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, at Zacchaeus' house, Jesus here declares what he came for. This is his agenda. He says here, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Why did Jesus come? What sort of king is he going to be? He is a king who comes to seek and to save the lost. This is the purpose of the Messiah. To find and to bring to salvation those whose sin has has broken their ability to know and worship their creator. There's nothing of national Israel present in what Jesus says about himself and his chief work in the world. The realm of king Jesus' reign is not national but spiritual. He has come to restore souls, friends, not borders. In fact, we look at the verses direct, if, if we look at the verses directly following our central passage today in Luke chapter nineteen verses forty-one through forty-four. We won't read those today, but you read those and you'll find there that Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem as he's entering into the city because he sees he being being Christ, being the Son of God, knows what's going to happen to this city. He knows that it will be destroyed in the near future and that its destruction will be devastating. So, if Jesus was coming to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, if he was coming to put new borders around the city and make Israel great again, then his rule and his reign were an abject failure. But in fact, his rule and his reign are not merely over national borders. Nothing as petty as that, as small as that. His rule and his reign are over the hearts of men and women who are restored and reconciled to God through him. And in that way, his rule and his reign are not an abject failure. They're an utter success. Those who wanted a political king of Jesus would be dramatically disappointed in Jesus in just a few short days after what we read here in Luke 19. But those who know that his true kingdom far surpasses what is physical and temporary rejoice all the more in that their hearts have been changed by the king of kings to know and to love their creator again. There is no greater rescue plan. There is no, no greater redemption work. Nothing, nothing comes close to, to the wonder and the miracle that is King Jesus who saves souls that are wrecked by sin to be right with God. Nothing comes close to touching that victory. Nothing comes close to touching that rule, that reign, that, that, that degree of his kingship. The realm of the king is shown to us in the way that Luke frames this portrait of Jesus. But also in the frame, we find that in adding value to the portrait of Jesus that we have, not only the realm of the king, but also the path to the throne. The sequence of events leading to a king taking his throne often occur this way. A king is selected, he is anointed, he's chosen... He enters into his capital city amid a parade of exulting throngs of loyal subjects, flags being waved, songs being sung, confetti being thrown. He arrives at the gate of his city and he's crowned by the dignitaries as their ruler. And then he, with all of his loving subjects, is ushered through the city streets to the steps of his palace where he climbs to sit to rule on a throne made of marble and gold and the finest accoutrements. Those who followed Jesus along the road that day, with little perspective on what would actually happen to Jesus in the week that followed, viewed his coronation parade, humble as it was. It's not filled with, with uh, uh, you know, uh, thousands upon thousands of people. Now, many of those who are following Jesus are there, but the whole city is not coming out to greet him. The dignitaries aren't coming out to crown him. There aren't songs of, of his victory being sung. His coronation parade is humble, but all the same, those who are present likely viewed it as the first step in a proper king's procession. They're just getting started on this thing. But friends, we have a better and fuller perspective of King Jesus's path to the throne than the disciples had on that day. Jesus is humbly ushered into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, not a horse, but a donkey. Where he's met by dissenters to his reign. Not those who are happy to see him. But by those who are telling him to shut his disciples up. Jesus will be carried not in the arms of those who love him. But carried away in the arms of those who hate him. He'll be crowned not by dignitaries. But by malicious soldiers. And not with gold but with thorns. Jesus' march will not be through the city streets to the palace. But through the city streets and out of the city. The throngs on his coronation day do not sing praises, but they spit insults. The steps that he will climb are not of marble leading to a beautiful throne, but, of, but a dirt road that leads up a hill where he will be skewered to a wooden cross and will die. This is the king's parade. The path to Jesus' throne winds through streets of torture and pain and suffering. The Messiah that the people wanted was the victorious warrior who rides in on a donkey to usher in an era of peace. Now, friends, Jesus does this, but in ways far better than they could ever imagine, and in ways far better than we often think of. Church, the war Jesus fights is not against the Romans or the Philistines or the Russians or ISIS. The war that Jesus fights is against our sin, against our rebellion against a holy and perfect God. And he is victorious. Jesus is a victorious king, not because he's a mighty warrior, but because he is the only righteous and holy servant of God who puts himself in our place to take the punishment that is due for our sin. You see, your greatest enemy in all the world is not a rogue government or a political party. Your greatest enemy in all the world is yourself and your own rebellion against your creator. Jesus, the king, has given his life to win the war that you on your own have already lost in his death. The king of Kings makes a way for your crimes against a holy and just God to be forgiven, to be wiped out, to be passed over and forgotten friends. What King does that? The March of King Jesus leads him to his death into his burial, into a day of silence and mourning among the few who loved him. But we know that his coronation parade does not end in death, it doesn't end in silence, because we know and always have known that the King of Kings, who rules and who reigns the cosmos and in the hearts of those who love him, finally does take his throne. He is raised three days after his death to reign, not on earth to compete with other kings, but as only the immortal and incarnate son of God can. And he ascends to heaven to sit at the right hand of the father where he is at even now, ruling and reigning over the cosmos and over every heart that that is turned and submitted and given to him in love and in worship. Friends, the frame of Luke's picture of Jesus helps us to see Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry for what it truly is. This event in the life of Jesus results in something far from what his followers expected. But it ultimately results in something far better than they could ever have imagined. Now, there are three ways to view Palm Sunday chronologically. We could try to as often as we have in, in the church and in church tradition for for many, many years, decades, centuries even, to, to view the events of Palm Sunday kind of from the side, as though we were looking at uh, frames in, in a, on, a, on a film reel we 're just watching events as they happen we 're trying to you know embrace and experience everything that is going on here in Luke chapter 19. We, we put our, pl- our place uh, we, we put ourselves in that place on that day, witnessing Jesus. Right on this donkey we're exulting with the crowds and we're looking at the Pharisees and man what are you guys doing and then we try to experience all of the events of Holy Week from the side as though we were there with Jesus uh, with no foresight as to what is going to happen just experiencing them as they go along friends I think that that's ultimately a limited and an unhelpful way to view the events of Jesus's life that week we have two far better perspectives from which to look upon the events of Palm Sunday and of Holy Week. On one end, we, could, we can look at the events not from the side, but from behind. Looking at Jesus as he is walking down the street into Jerusalem and looking down the, the, the path of time, if you will. We see where, where his life is headed. We see where his trajectory is going. That it's not going to ascend a, a throne in Jerusalem, but it's going to be nailed to a cross where he'll die for sins. We can see from the perspective behind Jesus heading to something that is going to be devastating for him and for his followers. And even beyond that, we, we see further that he'll be raised from the dead, that he will be victorious. And so when we look at Palm Sunday from behind... We see that this is not the, the beginning of the, this is, this is not the height of celebration of, of Jesus, but just the beginning of him being king. We know that his path to the throne leads down an unlikely road and leads down a road that none of us would want a king to go, but he goes there all the same and he purchases for us that which we could never do on our own. It's almost like uh, we, we see it in this way is almost looking from behind and, and seeing the path uh, of Jesus's life in Holy Week headed uphill in praise and adoration and, and even in the height of our, celebration of what he will do. There's a second perspective that I think is also helpful and healthy for us in viewing the events of Palm Sunday, not from the side, just trying to experience it as it goes along, but, but looking at it, not from behind, uh, Jesus on the donkey going into the sea, but looking at it from behind the, 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 the perspective of the resurrection. We know where all of this is going. And so we can, because God's Word helps us to, we know the, the beginning and the end of the story. We can turn that whole timeline on its end and we can look at the perspective, or we can look at the events of Palm Sunday from the perspective of the resurrection. Knowing where all of this is going and where it's coming to and where Jesus is is ultimately headed and how he'll be raised from the dead, victorious over sin and death. And so then we can look at Palm Sunday and we say, "That's that's a good day. It's a good day to rejoice that the king is coming. But also there's a better day when he dies on the cross for sins. And there's even a better day than that when he's raised from the dead for our justification with God. All of this is headed to a wonderful place. And we can't see that. We can't rejoice. We can't celebrate in Jesus the King on Palm Sunday if we don't view it from either of those two perspectives. Think about it this way. If we just look at Palm Sunday from the side. Our level of rejoicing starts here. It's like, hi, this is awesome. Jesus is coming. He's the king. But then very quickly, we see him doing things that we don't expect the king to do. In Jerusalem, he starts turning over tables in the temple and going after the Pharisees and doing this stuff. And we're starting to go, like, Jesus, what's going on here? What do you do? Our rejoicing begins to decline. And then it hits, an, uh, when we're watching from the side, it hits an all-time low when we see Jesus nailed to the cross and his disciples scattered in this day of silence. What in the world is going on? The disciples are thinking, what have we been doing with the last three years of our life? We who are trying to view these events from the side as they're happening, we're going, what have we been doing with the last two hours? I've been reading this gospel. And then we see Jesus being raised from the dead and our celebration picks back up again. Right. So the problem with viewing Jesus from the side and the events of Holy Week from the side is that our, our celebration of Jesus does this thing, right? Where it dips down in the middle and we lose celebration at the point of the cross. We're, we're mourning. We're grieving at the point of the cross. But friends, from either behind or from before, we know that the cross is not a day of, it's not a day of sadness. It's a day of rejoicing. Why? Because God has fixed your sin problem in Christ. When we look at the events of the, of, of Holy Week from behind, we see, we begin celebrating here at this level, right? seems it's a lot lower than we were before. It's it's down here. So good things are happening. But because we see ahead that we see that there are better things that are going to happen in the events of the week, we see that Jesus is going to go to the cross where he'll pay for our sins. Yeah, that's a hard day. That's a dark day. But ultimately friend, ultimately sinner, that's a good day because Jesus takes care of your sins there. And I can't reach that high because I already started with my arms too high. But after the resurrection, right, our rejoicing goes even higher. So when we view the, the events of Holy Week, either from behind Jesus looking forward to what he's going to do or from the other Side of the resurrection, we see that our celebration doesn't start high, go low, and then end high. Our celebration starts high and and it ascends in in astronomical order as the day of resurrection comes. So, as we see this full presentation of Jesus as king, as we see the portrait of the king and the frame that goes around it that that sets in in proper contrast and in proper place who this king is, as we see the full presentation of Jesus' reign. As king, and we consider whether we're submitting to him on his terms or the terms that you impose upon him, uh, you, you need to know that Jesus will be worshiped as he is intended to be worshiped. Jesus will be worshiped on his terms, not ours. Not ours. Look also, friend, at the triumphal entry, I would encourage you, through the lens of the cross and the resurrection. Know that greater rejoicing comes when Christ ra- uh, rises from the dead. And know that for the Christian, even the cross can be a moment of deep celebration. Even the cross can be a moment in which we exult in what the king has done. So, friend, what portrait of King Jesus defines how you see him today? Is it one of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who died an unfortunate death for preaching a message of peace and love and harmony as many cultural icons would prefer to view Jesus? You see Jesus the way Oprah sees Jesus? Lord, I hope not. Or do you see the true king? Do you see Jesus, the only son of God, who willingly stepped out of heaven and into a human body to live a life of perfect sinlessness? The life that none of us has ever lived. The life that none of us can ever hope to live. So that he could endure the full sentence for our rebellion against our perfect God and creator. Christian, are you following the king on his terms or do you want something else? Do you want someone else? Do you want something more earthy from him? Friend, you may be a guest here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a a Christian. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're hearing and seeing this picture of who Christ is today. But you who do not know Jesus as king, is is, is your heart not stirred by the portrait of this king that we've seen today? In a world full of potentates and pundits and talking heads who act only for their preservation, would you consider this day giving the rule and the reign of your life to a king who has, who has not sought to take from you, but who has given everything that it ha- he, he had, his own life, to make you whole and to make you right with your creator? Friend, what picture of Jesus do you see on Palm Sunday? What picture, what portrait of Jesus as king do you look to each day in your life? Is it one who who seeks to to only reward you in in this temporal moment? Or one who has done something far greater than anything that this world can offer for a period of time far longer than any, any mind can fathom? As we look at this portrait of a king and the frame that surrounds it, that sets its proper value, let us see King Jesus as he truly is. Let's pray.